Here we go. That recording, it sounded like there was a horse in the background galloping. I was like, hey, that probably won't pick up the sound of the sound of his chewing, surely. You look away. Yeah. They're in the other direction. Yeah. Uh, campfire listeners, Josh is in the open week right now. He's got to eat lots of food. So he's eating right now. So you may hear the occasional Clydesdale clop by. Clip, clop, clip, clop, clip, clop. <laughs> just pretend it's a horse if chewing bothers you. Yes, just pretend it's a horse. It's a pony. Um, but interesting article, right? Mm-hmm. So we got to get the campfire listeners in on uh, some of the conversation. So the guy who wrote that, was his name was uh, Richard something. But the idea that's interesting in that article to me is the idea of a narrative metaphysic. I was like, when I read that, I had to really stop for a second and think, like, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. So metaphysics is like, meta means what? Let's look it up and just see what, like, Google says. I have an idea for what this means, but, and I think the long and short of it, the branch of philosophy that deals with the first principles of things, including abstract concepts, such as being, knowing, substance, cause, identity, time, and space. So essentially, the guy was making a position, and this is a very small body of scholarship, like in the sage, like official publication of scholarly articles database thing, there's only like seven articles that reference that one that I sent you. But it's like the idea that the foundation of the universe is actually a story. Like, because if you look at... Um, you look at like, even at a quantum level, when you look at physics, everything's unpredictable. It's like magic. Nobody understands it. It's weird. We can't seem to iron out the rules. And just when we think we figured it out, something else in space pops up that confuses us. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what if narrative is the, the constant? And in more than that, like what if narrative story is literally, what if creativity is literally the generative force for like physics as we know it? (laughs) I think it's a compelling idea like that is very strange to like a scientist or a, a philosopher, but the elevation of narrative as something that's more than just creative. Narrative is a human term, and the primary points of narrative that make something a narrative can be mathematically illustrated. I'm not opposing or anything. I'm just throwing that out there. Stories can be represented mathematically. They're getting to where emotions and love can be represented mathematically. Mm. what does that mean that doesn't change anything so like that's like saying some you can tell a you can tell a story in english or spanish what's the difference you can tell it in mathematics it doesn't change the in mathematics things become predictable (laughs) 
But I think that's like narrative is, is exceptional in that it is unpredictable. It requires a, uh, it requires higher order thought. It requires a being, an a priori being to dictate whether or not things are predictable. It requires a variable of some sort. Because really, mathematics aren't predictable if you think about it. Explain. Like when you get to really high level mathematics, they don't, so I should say, they don't seem always predictable. What are you talking about? Can you be specific? So like, for example, whenever a mathematician is doing his work, he may write something and be like, how do you... How do you, how does this work? And then the community of mathematicians will work together to find the answer, but it wasn't the answer that anybody thought it was going to be. It's almost like a surprise in the mathematical narrative. Well, sure. That's part of what makes a narrative. Right. I'm just saying that to, that it can be mathematics does not in any way affect the how remarkable it is to think of um narrative as like the foundation for physics in the universe it's a challenging idea but like if you think about it so i was thinking about this today in this context like when you're a baby um everything is like touch and experience and physical and then everything's kind of verbal you start to learn words and you're like ah words are the trick to everything and then at some point you really start to figure out narrative, like stories. And I think stories have the biggest impact on us, like the story we tell ourselves, mm-hmm. the stories that we hear told. In every cultural context, people love stories, mm-hmm. um, regardless of like IQ and all these different things. It's almost like I feel like we – humanity is like realizing and this is and this is what's so interesting and what one of the things that piqued my interest was peterson talks so much about narrative Mm -hmm. and how we cannot lose our stories it's like our stories are more than just foundational they are they point us backwards and they point us forwards at the same time like i read that article and i felt like it was very challenging to think about um, a narrative leaves room for abstraction. It leaves room for subjective experience within the narrative without imposing. It's somebody else's story that we get to experience mm-hmm. or it's our story that we're experiencing. But two people can go through the same experience, just like we talked about with Chris, mm-hmm. and have two different experiences, two different interpretations of the same event. Hmm. So maybe it's that narrative allows for subjective interpretation hmm. while still illustrating universal truth. Just as an idea. It's an interesting idea. I think that like the proposition in the article was bigger though. It, it is. Yeah. It's the proposition bigger. in the article was seemed to be, when I read it, pointed directly at the biblical narrative. Yeah, I think to a degree it does. <clears throat> but more than that, I think that if you if you sort of remove the biblical narrative from context, it's the idea that, like, so another, another way to think about this is 
Adam and Eve. I told you the garden story. Did I tell you about the uh, like the science of the snake and the tree and the people? Not that I recall. So this will probably ring while you're doing this. This probably be interesting to the listeners. So like Peterson thinks, I don't know if Peterson thinks this, but I think he secretly does think this, but he would never say that. Like he never stakes a claim, I feel like. But but I think that at some point in human history, when humans were near tree dwelling, they were going to get fruit and they encountered snakes that developed their eyes and made them, made them, made their brains big big enough and strong enough and powerful enough processors that we started to think about the future and we became self-aware. Like, I think that's literally the story of the Garden of Eden, but it's like, the it's like, is the story of Garden of Eden literal or is it metaphorical? It's like, I have this sense that, and I feel like the more puzzle pieces I'm getting in life, it's both. When you research the science of the eye and how good the eye is at seeing camouflage of snake, why is the human eye so exceptional at seeing color? Think about how colorful fruits are. It's like it was both literal and metaphorical at the same time. So it's like, what does that mean for like the earliest scripture? Like when it talks about God, plural, gods were hovering over the face of the water. It's like, what? Where you and if you take it literally, like, what does that mean if the narrative is true? How do you reconcile that with what we were taught about the one true God? I think it's two different ideas entirely. I think that there are there is a traditional entrenchment of faith where people, the scope of their world ends at the boundary of Scripture. And then I think that there are those who are reverse engineering that idea to a certain degree. Like they're taking the Bible as a hypothesis, but they're outsiders to the biblical worldview and throwing throwing it against the wall and seeing what sticks. And I think that they're very different methods and very different that and very different ideas have stuck in both. If you come from inside the biblical narrative, everything sticks. You don't throw it against the wall. It's a solemn rule that you never test it or question it. But Even I th- though the Bible says otherwise. Right, even though the Bible says to test everything and to hold true to what's good or whatever, but I think it's two different methodology, two different methods, and I just think it's I have never taken seriously, and and very few people take seriously the idea that to think about the universe in the context of a story, not even the biblical story, but in the context of a story, is actually like. Uh, a good starting place. Would it be fair to say that the, the modern <clears throat> Christian church is in blue and the emergence is those seeking to revolutionize in orange? I think there's, there, I think <coughs> people like it for myself, I wanted to cast it off because it felt oppressive and I wanted my own sense of truth. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't un- under the, the guise of law and order. I wasn't allowed to search for my own truth, which is a very common narrative theme we see in our culture. Mm-hmm. I think that in, so when I think about blue and this is something that I didn't talk about when we talked about spiral dynamics, I think about the externalization of the law. 
I feel like in red, the leader is the is like right. the law. It's more it, subjective. And then people are like, uh, this isn't working out so well. We need like a set of rules that everybody is subject to, including the leaders. And so the law is externalized, which is very, very like Judeo, like Old Testament. So in as much as Christianity fails to understand that the New Testament kind of overrules the Old Testament in a way, and that's sticky territory, like it doesn't delete it, but it kind of changes the... It fulfills it. It fulfills it. There we go. That's the language I'm looking for. <laughs> uh in as much as Christianity fails to see the fulfillment of the New Testament, the old the fulfillment of the Old Testament in the New, they're still in blue. And there's a lot of that. A lot of people don't understand um, how to deal with like the old, uh, old law versus new life. You know, but I think that like there's a lot of orange in churches that Western expansionist very like business oriented creative independent it's like yeah we're this community but very like family oriented like your family is like a sacred boundary in the church like mm. you don't tell other people's family people in the church are i feel like are very i think of the idea of a uh, protestant work ethic i remember learning that in history mm. it's essentially like the early colonies in the protestant faith those people were like insane workers and i feel mm -hmm. like that has kind of trickled down to the church now i see some green now in church for sure even among like staff members and mm -hmm. stuff really complex emotion confliction starting to starting to realize that these things need to be more integrative and um and the church was never meant to be an exclusive place and um so I do think there's a lot of blue in church, but I think that that doesn't, even that I think doesn't bear weight in my mind on the idea of taking narrative more seriously. It's like, do we, what's the correct level of analysis? Do we, do we not analyze the universe at the quantum level? Do we analyze it at the molecular level? Do we analyze it at the, the, you know, this is, this is a rhetorical question. The physical level. Well, I think that it's rhetorical to a degree because they all, all communicate like similar truth at times, but like, this is the problem with AI. Like they're trying to teach computers now to look around and make sense of what's around them. And to a computer, when you start to try to spell out, differentiate this object from that object they're like they're like doesn't work mm -hmm. and then we're we're realizing how hard it is to make sense of things how do you explain to an intelligence a non-intelligence that this is a chair to it it's just a bundle of molecules that looks just like the bundle of molecules beside it mm -hmm. and so and then we have these complex ideas like life and meaning and purpose i mean so it sounds like you've been listening to jordan peterson I, I haven't been listening to a lot of peterson lately really not at all I, he addresses all of this I, I think that i i remember and i understand like what he's saying about a lot of these things 
but I think that he won't take it all the way. He's like, it's like he's hedging his bets. He's always like on the highly conservative, not political conservative, but the highly like ideologically conservative uh, spectrum. Like he's open. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, he's open. He's teachable. He's humble. He's always like, I don't know the answer. But I think that uh, I think that like what he's hinting at and not saying is that this is an interesting dynamic to me. I sat down with a guy who was kind of all over the place. He wanted to start his own gym. He worked at a gym, a functioning gym. And he, we had, we had, we sat down and talked for like an hour and a half over lunch and about 45 to 55 minutes of it was a gripe session for him. And he got into, he criticized one of the people that I consider to be pretty incredible in the fitness arena. And I was like, Hmm, like I was, I was just thinking as he was talking, this is so interesting because he sounded like he had all these better ideas, all these fantastic yeah. ideas. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, I was, I was, as I was listening to him, I was thinking, you haven't established or built anything. Yeah. Yeah. And yet you think you're better than so and so. Yeah. Not saying that's what you're doing, but there's a sense of that. And like, it's easy to sit on the outside and look at, because I've had to reckon, reckon with that spirit on, like in my own life where I feel like at one point I was like, I know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And then I made a bunch of mistakes and now I'm like, I lied. I have no idea what I'm doing. (laughs) I need a lot of help, (laughs) but it's fun. It's fun to speculate. It's fun to sit in the, in the, in the stands of the arena and watch people go at it. And you're like, man, they could be doing this so much better. Or if you just did this, or if you just said that, but if you're not doing, what are you doing? <laughs> it's funny because the the problem is you can abstract all day. Well, it's not abstract. It's a it's a hypo, It's a like it's a testable hypothesis. What, what is the narrative thing? Yes, the about? idea of narrative. So how do we test it? I think that humanity is constantly testing it. That is the that is what life is. Like mm-hmm. we're trying to figure out it's like the next breakthrough. And I think the next breakthrough is nihilism versus like purpose. Nihilism means like basically like will towards nothing. Everything is completely relative. Yes. What if I said breakthroughs are actually rediscoveries of truths that were always there? No bells ringing. Human beings have never been without narrative in terms of being human beings. But but people are trying to destroy narrative now. Always. This is, but not always to this degree. Like in, if you look, let's just go rewind 500 years. People had a, a very connected sense of tradition, a very connected sense of, uh, of history and like where they came from and their ancestors. 
and you got the occasional like library burning, which is was a freaking absolute atrocity. But now it's like everyone like destruction of knowledge is commonplace, or like even if it's not destruction of knowledge, like people behave that way. They're trying to tear down like knowledge and thinking in other people's minds. People have always done that. I do. I do agree with you that people are like, "Oh, the world's getting worse and worse," and it's like I, I see things as being the same always. Always. It's like it's never gotten, it hasn't gotten worse or any better. We see a little bit more of everything now, which can create an illusion depending on who's spinning how much you see. But I do agree with you that humanity hasn't changed. Like we think we're so sophisticated now, and it's like we basically figured out electricity and steel. And like, that's why we seem sophisticated. Incredible discoveries. But we, but like, there are many people who we look just as barbaric as, as ancient tr- people, ancient peoples who are sacrificing people on pyramids. I think. When I scroll through social media, I see a bunch of five to seven year olds. Yeah. And or middle schoolers. Yeah. I even saw it was a meme or something <clears throat> about, cause I got a, I got a couple like parenting meme people that I follow and they were like <laughs> they were talking about their middle school child and how much drama goes on at their school and it was like and it's the same drama I have at 35 <laughs> that's not good <laughs> that, well because like the the psych, the idea in psychology is that like our worldview is crystallized but between the years of five and seven from there, our coping mechanisms and problem-solving skills may get more sophisticated, but they don't actually evolve <laughs> unless we do some very conscious, mindful work. That's not them. encouraging, dude. Not encouraging. And most people are not mindful. Yeah. And I think that, like, anybody who can follow this conversation is somebody who's searching. Yeah. So listen, podcast listeners. <laughs> This is the question I bet I'm asking. This is a question that put us down this rabbit hole. Is God being itself or is he a being? <laughs> you can obviously tell where I stand based on the way that I asked that question. Is he, is he, is he, is he? Um, and I don't necessarily say that I stand there. I think that the, the challenge is that I've come across now is... <laughs> I've had personal breakthroughs predicated on the a priori idea that God is a being, which confuses me. It's like, why? Does that catalyze change that the idea that God is being itself does not catalyze? It's true. I had more breakthroughs in releasing God as a being releasing that idea god as a being seemed very simple well and and so and that's not so this is what i was talking about yesterday and i didn't articulate this well i don't think that that's the perfect measure of like whether or not something is true is like whether or not you something is useful and the reason why i think that is is because what measure like our life change is always the perfect measure that's the measure you just brought up. I know, I know, I know. And I'm kind of contradicting myself, but <laughs> the idea is interesting. So like there are, there are principles in the universe. Yeah. If you follow the principles in the universe, you're going to be, you're going to have breakthroughs mm-hmm. because that's the way the universe is organizing. You're like, 
you're going with the flow of, of energy. Mm-hmm. But I think that I think that the idea that there's a being that's separate from this whole situation. So you can prosper and have no connection to a being. Or uh, or, or you can you can have a connection to a being and not prosper based on principle. So like the more important question is, is, is God a being or being itself? And uh, it's just an interesting question to kick around. Why does it have to be one or the other? Um, I think the ideas are mutually exclusive at multiple levels of analysis. <laughs> I think they're mutually exclusive. Can you explain this in three sentences or less? Uh, I'm trying to think if I can explain it in three sentences or less. <laughs> hmm. Use an illustration. The illustration's better. The best way to explain things. Hmm. Illustrations contain narratives inherently. Maybe a story. See, look at this. We've just turned to narrative. Yeah. I feel like there's something there. Jesus spoke in parables. What does that mean? Huh? What does that mean? What do you mean? It means there's, it means what I said earlier. I think there's more power in narratives because it illustrates universal truth while allowing for subjective reality. So I think narrative interpretation narrative is the proper way to uh, I think or I am becoming convinced that narrative is the proper mm, maybe this is the wrong word but maybe I think that narrative is the proper metaphysic by which we should discuss the universe. Maybe narrative is a metaphysic. So if it is, what is the narrative of the universe? Or there isn't one. Or there isn't one? I think it's I think it's been told. Uh-huh. Peterson talks kind of about this. I think it's been told or been not told. It's been discovered mm-hmm. and mankind has many times over attempted to illustrate it. Same thing dressed up in different clothes all around the world and all through history. Different Mm -hmm. languages speak to different people at different times. Hmm. This is an interesting question. I need to further formulate my ideas. (laughs) I feel like they sharpened between our conversation and this morning. Sure. Um, but I feel like there's more there. There's a more poignant way to communicate the idea of narrative as a metaphysic. A story is the proper beginning place for understanding the universe. <clears throat> anyway, you know me. Always back and always uh, back and forth. Always here and there. I'm always trying to bring balance. Yes, balance to the force. Uh, on another interesting topic, it's a good place to stop here. Another interesting thing. What's something interesting? That <laughs> sounds like an interview question. What's new? In you, what's new in your world? What's your revelation? 
Well, like I mentioned earlier, I've reached a new level of realizing how much I don't know. That's good. Did you know there is such thing as I can't be wrong syndrome? I may have some of that. ICBW. It's like actual medical syndrome. I can't be wrong syndrome. Otherwise known as inflated ego. Yeah, maybe so. But I feel like the way that uh, I heard it described, it's like, it's like clinical. Like, yeah. Yeah, I, I think the, the ego is a clinical thing, yeah. clinical, clinically definable thing. And I immediately was like, hmm, I know some people who are kind of that way. <laughs> hmm. I do too. And what, they're, they're a little obnoxious. What do you feel like uh, opened, broadened your view more? Broadened your perspective more? Uh, I mean, ultimately, it comes down to mindfulness. You were like meditating? Just paying attention to what's going on Pay around attention. me. I own a business. I have a family. I own a house. I own vehicles. Mm -hmm. I had to, I'm having to reckon with the fact that it all feels like it's falling apart. Hmm. And the gym's not growing. And I'm not doing anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> so what's going on yeah. <laughs> and I was like after you after I sat with that for a couple months and it was really uncomfortable I was like I don't know what to do because I can't fix the house and I can't fix the cars without money business is not growing so I either have to like give up and get a job or make the business grow or change your perspective and follow economic forces and don't get a job, but get a job. <laughs> Find a job that's interesting and funny that you will like. At this point, I can do anything. Yes, I know. You can be a freaking astronaut. And it would be so easy. You think so? Yeah. Well, then it's just a temporary thing that's going to segue you back into business. The hardest, I feel like the hardest part of working for somebody would be the person. And I get along with people okay. I can learn to tolerate somebody for years. Not that that's a healthy thing all the time, but I'm, I'm even becoming okay with confrontation. Did we, we lost that whole sales talk, didn't we? The campfire talk. We got into sales. I think so, yeah. Yeah, so I have, a, I have an extreme, one of the revelations I've had about myself is that I have an extreme discomfort around the idea that I have the ability to influence other people's belief systems. Mm -hmm. That doesn't feel right to me, even though it's fine. I do it every day. But um, Somebody who who told me this. Oh, it was a it was a former gym member. He was like, because he's in real estate. He's a, he's a pretty good salesman, and he was like, I've excelled at what I do because I genuinely believe that I'm the best at what I do. Not necessarily like the best in the world at real estate, but he loves to learn. He's okay with making mistakes, and he genuinely cares about the about his clients. Yeah, and he was like. 
he pointed out, he's like, I was at your gym for almost two years and it was tough. Like you guys were training me and there was things I wanted to do that you wouldn't let me do. But he's like, the reality is I was there for that long and I never got injured. And I was able to keep working out and move on to what I wanted to do next. And he's like, that's something he's like, he pointed out, he's like, in that regard, he's like, you guys are great at helping people dial in where they should be in terms of their training. Mm -hmm. And you need to kind of own that and realize that if they go somewhere else, they might not get that and mm -hmm. they might get hurt. And their whole fitness thing, their whole health and wellness thing might be thrown off because they went to a gym and got injured. Yeah. He's like, you've got to kind of reckon with an idea like that. Or they might go somewhere that where they won't get the same kind of like character results that we can get mm -hmm. at our gym. Because they might just be given what they want to hear. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, these, there's a bunch of these like six and 12 week challenges going around right now that get fast results, but they're short term results and they don't address behavioral, long term behavioral changes. Did I tell you, did I seen that video of Kerwin Ray talking about personal branding? This lady asked him a question and she was doing Mary Kay selling makeup, multi-level marketing. And he said, he basically redirected her and said, like, you need to start developing a personal brand. And Mary Kay is one of the things that you do because Mary Kay's come and go, but you will always have your personal brand. Right. It's like the only thing that's not going to crash and burn no matter what happens. It's like the value that you've created interacting with people. And that was like groundbreaking for me. Mm. I was like, I'm never building a business. I'm building my personal brand. Mm. And, and I feel like too, so this is a really good conversation bouncing off what you were saying because I had a lot of business ambition and maybe I still do. I'm not sure. But what I found was like, I got the loan disclosure for my house today. And I was looking at it this morning. And first of all, I was like, I felt like I was reading a piece of paper that had my soul on it. <laughs> I feel like it was like the book of life. I was like looking at it like and my soul was moving and I was like, holy crap. Like, Abide by this or you shall be forsaken. Dude, I was like, what does this mean? I was horrified. But at the same time, I was encouraged because I was like, I'm a hundred percent, as long as I don't die, gonna retire. Not retire. I never am going to retire. So let's qualify that idea. Anytime on this podcast we talk about retirement, we don't mean being done working and putting your toes in the sand and drinking margaritas. But I think that we will be financially independent 100% by the time we're like 40, unless I really screw up bad <laughs> or like lose a limb or something and have like astronomical medical bills. Because it's basic math. Basic math. If we save like just a like, mm, if we save half of our of our residual income based on my income now, we'll have a nest egg that'll produce enough income for us to live on by the time I'm like thirty, early mid thirties probably. Not that so that's not including any like anything, any like tax return, any money that's gifted to us, any raises. Emily's business has been growing and it's like, I'm going to be okay. Like I don't need to have a business to be financially independent. Oh yeah. 
which was like, as you have to, you understand about that, like you understand better than most people. I'm a self-preservational person. Mm -hmm. That was like a very freeing experience. Mm -hmm. But I feel like at the same time I was realizing like that set me free to realize I don't have to have a business in order to be, I don't have to have a business. <laughs> it's okay. I can have a, I can have a beautiful life mm -hmm. and like touch the people around me and be everything that some business people can't be mm -hmm. an amazing dad. I can be like a pillar at my job, a legend. Mm -hmm. <laughs> just by doing your job. Just by doing my job and hanging around. Just don't, all you got to do is just don't quit <laughs> for a little while, for a long enough period of time. And care. You have to care. Yeah, yeah. And you got to love what you do. I mean, no no legend is like is just flumping around through life half awake. Uh, but it was very freeing for me. It was like you got to break through that idea of like the business being the universe's path for you. Me? Yeah. That's not where I'm at. Oh, I thought that I thought you were like because it sounds like to me when you talk about losing the business, it sounds like the end of the world. It's not the business; it's the relationships for me. So the end of the business would be the end of the relationships. Would it mean, could be? That's what scares me. I yeah. don't know. Yeah, I lose the Interper context. Interpersonal, right? I lose the context for which. Like on, on which all of these relationships that I care about are built. Yeah. But, you know, you never know. It could open the door for me to like let go, walk away and go find a new community mm -hmm. that I don't have to lead. Mm -hmm. But then would I be happy not leading? Dude, you never know. This might just be part of the, um, whenever Emily was in labor and she transitioned, she said, basically, like, she was doing great, great, great. She was like, I don't know if I can do this. Mm -hmm. And the midwife was like, this is good. That probably means that you're in transition. This is the feeling that you get right before you go into the last push of labor. And for all you know, this is like labor pain. Like, you know what I mean? It's like the transition. It's just part of the business, like, getting to the next level. <laughs> you don't really know. But I think you're right that it's good to not have you've got to broaden that perspective enough to to let go to let go of whatever needs to be let go of. Mm -hmm. uh, but it makes you question the pressure. It's a pressure cooker or like a crucible. Like it burns away anything that's not really meaningful if you're willing to stay in it long enough. Mm -hmm. But if you run away from the pain. Um, then you don't find out. You don't get to find out. Because mm. if you run away from it once, you, yes. you begin to establish a pattern of running away and it never, it, it's likely it will never get burned off. You never find out who you are. Yep. And so quitting, I've got, a, I've already got a pattern of moving from one thing to the next every few years. Mm -hmm. And so this, I've come to a place where like, I've got a, I've got a, if the ship's going to go down, I've got to go down with it. I've got to be willing. And I realize in video games, I play, yeah. play these stupid video games, and there's points when I'm like, I'm done with this game. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, and nothing even monumental really happened. I just, just, just didn't go according to plan. I get mad. And I'm like, that's just stupid. This game's stupid. Is that how you end a relationship with a game? No. Anger? Never. 
Never. I always, if, if it ends in anger, I always come back to it. Yeah. Cause I got to beat it. <laughs> I got to win. I got to fulfill whatever the expectation was to some degree. Um, <laughs> if like usually how my relationship with the video game ends is, uh, I get bored. Yeah. But even so, like there's like, a video game has little to offer in that regard. Cause at some point there's nothing left to do. The business, on the other hand, has. There's always something to do. There's always something to do, but there's always room for. Uh, what are the words? Like, I had a great meeting with a chiropractor today about getting her in the space to do adjustments at the gym. Mm-hmm. And she's she's a doer. So she's all about just being able to do as long as I can set up the logistics and make sure she can come in and do mm-hmm. her energy's good. And I'm thinking, okay, this is the beginning of what my, this could be the beginning of what my overall vision for the gym could be, which is building like a, not necessarily an all in one stop shop, but a place where people are established as a community and mm-hmm. it's understood that this is where we take care of ourselves mm-hmm. in healthy ways. You can come in, pick up your food, see the chiropractor, get your workout in, all in 60 minutes. Mm. You guys need a beer tapped in. <laughs> there's, some, there's some red tape uh, with that, but maybe one day. Dude, red tape? That's why you just put it around in the to put it around in the back where nobody can see it. Then we can't advertise. Put a little kegerator. Don't need to advertise. Advertisement. Open the door. That's advertising. Uh, yeah. No. No. I don't drink at the gym unless you do. If you know what I mean. If you know what I'm saying. That's how you advertise it. Yeah. Unless you do. <laughs> oh man. That's my favorite new thing to say. I, I picked it up from this guy, Theo Vaughn. People be like, "Yeah, yeah, I don't do like I don't do that," and I'd be like, "No, me neither." Unless you do. <laughs> uh, people. Um. So, I had a. What do you think the next project? Definitely, we should do like a clinic. I think on something like the Enneagram or something like that, but. We should start putting some deadlines on, uh, like resources. We should start like an Enneagram resource, whether that's like a website or a book or something. By us? Yeah, dude. Yep. Grass-fed, hometown roots, Enneagram page, West Brothers Enneagram Theory. I think we need to bring people together first. Well, I think the resource is not the thing that that we're building. We're always building community, but I think that's a valuable thing for building community is just to have like a a resource that is created by the community, you know? Sure. That eyebrow could not go any higher. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Uh, I don't feel like it's time for that yet. Okay. You, feel, not, like the that a bad you idea. feel like the community has to be there first. Yeah, I want to know who we're talking to. Yeah. I know some of the people. 
Man, I can't. That's really uh, not uncomfortable. It's just a very strange thought to think about. We talk to people and people are listening, but we don't ever see them. And to go like, and to go be around them, that's a weird thought. And they they know us better than we know them. (laughs) But it's exciting too. Like, um, yeah, clinic. Uh Enneagram clinic. Workshop. The term workshop might be overused. We need to think of something better than clinic, too. Gathering. Mm, I don't know. We can brainstorm it later. Sounds a little mystical. Any final thoughts for the uh, podcast listeners? Stay strong. Be easy. Live. It's not over yet. Fight.